Please join with me in standing and opening your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. This will be our last sermon from Ephesians chapter 1 as we wrapped up this great and glorious chapter of God's Word. And if you remember last week, we were looking at this prayer that Paul has at the end of chapter 1 where he was praying for knowledge of God and he gives three key areas uh, that we would know the hope to which he has called us and what are the riches of the glorious inheritance and the saints and the power which God has, is working at in the church. And we wanted to take one final time to look at what Paul says about this power because it is a, a great and glorious statement. And so that's what we're going to be looking at today from verses 19 through the end of chapter 1, verse 23. So hear now God's word, for God is indeed speaking to us through it. And Paul says that he's praying in verse 19 and that we would know what is the immeasurable greatness of God's power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come and he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, this is indeed your word. And I do pray, echo Paul's prayer, that you would give us eyes to see your power at work in the church, the power that you worked in the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you encourage us and embolden us? for faithfulness in the church and in the midst of this world, uh, and would you speak to us? Help us to be active listeners, even as your very word is our very life, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So what is the power of the church? I think we would have, in, in our day and age, we would tend to measure the power of the church as a reflection of the church's influence in society or culture in the day and age that we live. But that, uh, that measure of power kind of ebbs and flows. Over the course of history, um, ever since the church was born, there were times where the church was influential in the midst of culture, and there was times when it was not very influential, it was despised. Um, and even from country to country, it differs. In our own lifetime, we've seen uh, a time where the church has had influence in the midst of our culture, even while brothers and sisters in other countries did not share that level of influence. They were in persecution or uh, cast aside. But even in our own day and age, even as we've been watching the trajectory of our culture over the past several years, it can cause us to wonder whether the church, even in our day and age, is starting to lose influence and a hold on our society, even as um, our culture becomes a so-called post-Christian culture, and the church gets moved to the side. Uh, but the, the picture that we have from scriptures is uh, something very different from, I think, how we would define the power of the church. It's not so much an external reflection of our influence or the church's influence in culture, but rather a internal power of God that he has placed in the church, that he's working in the church, that does have 
external ramifications. And we see that even in this particular passage. And that's namely this, is that the power that God worked in the Lord Jesus Christ is the power that he is working now in the church. And it is glorious. It is immeasurable power. And it is that same power that is at work in us even now. And Paul gives us three glimpses, three different ways in which that power was worked in Jesus Christ that is now being worked in the church. And those three are the resurrection. He raised Jesus from the dead. But secondly, an exaltation. He has exalted Jesus to the highest honor. And the third is a giving of authority. He has placed all things under his feet. And so that's what we'll look at as we look at this passage here at the end of chapter one. But the first is that um, the Lord the Lord has raised Jesus from the dead and that power is being made manifest in the resurrection. So I just want to pause just to begin. We, we talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ so much that I wonder if you and I have lost a sense of wonder as to the immense power that was at display or displayed in that act. Jesus came and became a man just like you and me. He took on flesh. He was born. He grew. He endured life. He uh, grew weary at the end of his days. He became hungry. He, he had skin, flesh and bones like you and me. He sweat when it was hot outside. And at the end of his life, he was tortured and crucified, a painful and shameful death. And he really died. His heart stopped beating. His lungs stopped breathing. He became a corpse. He was wrapped up in burial cloths and anointed with burial ointment, with spices. He was placed in a tomb, and he was dead for days. Now, for us, uh, death is death. It's the end. There's a finality to it. You know, some of us have mourned the loss of loved ones. Uh, we talk about uh, we rejoice at uh, the death of God's people because we know that they, they have passed beyond the uh, realm of suffering. Um, but even in the midst of whatever emotions we might have at death, for us, death is the end. It's, it's, it's final. Um, we, we have no expectation that this person that lies in a coffin, their skin and their, their body color, which is now faded and pale, that they're all of a sudden going to start breathing, that their heart's going to start pumping again, that they're going to sit up out of the coffin or, or claw their way out of the ground and be alive again. And yet that's exactly what happened with the Lord Jesus Christ. Days passed by and his cold body became warm as his heart started pumping again. He breathed life again and he stood up. He peeled off those burial cloths and he walked out of that tomb. He was alive. This is unmatched power in the universe. Even the greatest doctor can't revive a person who is truly dead for days. And yet God did this. He worked that great resurrection from the dead so that death no longer has a sting. Death is no longer the end. It's no longer a picture of futility and 
uh, end of hope, but there's great hope because of that resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that is the power that the Apostle Paul says is part of that immeasurable greatness of the power toward us, that he has worked in the church, in us who who have believed, this raising him from the dead. We'll see this in chapter 2 when we get to this, that the Apostle Paul says that just like Jesus was dead, he says, and you were dead. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. There's, a, there's an aspect that those of us who are not in Christ are, have that same uh, lack of hope, that, that finality, that futility, that foolishness of being dead, dead in our trespasses and sins. And yet God says that he, in Christ Jesus, made us alive with him. He, he took our cold, dead, hardened hearts and breathed life into them so they would become fleshly, pumping life and hope in the midst of our mortal bodies. That is the work that God has done, a part of this great power that he has done in raising Jesus from the dead. So um, the first aspect of his power is in this resurrection, but the second there is in the exaltation of Jesus. Notice what it says. It says, uh, verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is to be named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So there's a lot there. So let's take a look. So he he seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. He's seated him at a at a place of honor in the heavenly places. And we've seen this term, the heavenly places, before. We saw it when Paul talked about he has given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. This is a spiritual realm. This is not the earthly realm, the spiritual realm, the place where God himself resides. And this is the place where Jesus has been exalted into, ascended into, and seated at God's right hand at in the heavenly places. And it's a place of honor to be at God's right hand. In fact, Paul says it's the highest honor. So he who was humbled by becoming a man, by subjecting himself to the suffering of this life and the curse of death on a cross has now been not just raised to new life, but exalted to the highest honor. And he says, look at all the uh, powers that he describes, that he's he's put him above. He says, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion or lordship. There is not a single uh, power or dominion, either a spiritual power or earthly power that Jesus has not placed, or that God has not placed Jesus far above. He is far above all those Things. He, and so much so that it says that he, it is every name that is to be named. There's not a name that is a higher name in all of the created order or the spiritual realm that is higher than Jesus. He is he's received the highest honor that he possibly could. But then it's not just for now, but it is an eternal one. Notice what he says. He says, not only in this age but also in the one to come. So this is a glimpse that Paul gives us clearly in God's word that there is we are living in an age now, and yet there is an age 
to come, that there are two ages, and we are living on this side of that glorious divide of the two ages. But notice that Jesus has an eternal, an eternal exaltation. He is not only in this age, but also in the one to come. There will never be a name that is higher than Jesus. There will never be a ruler or authority or power or dominion that has any exaltation above Jesus. He is the supreme exalted Lord forever and ever and always will be. But notice what it says that not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So that means that he's exalted even now. He is in that position now, which I think is harder for us to believe than that he will be exalted forever and ever. This would have been great hope for the Ephesian people, because if you remember, we said that the Ephesians were very superstitious. They had their worship of uh, Artemis and Diana, and in Acts chapter 19, there's a story about how um, many who practiced magic arts took their magic books and burned them uh, in the sight of all. And they would have expected some backlash, uh, some persecution perhaps. Um, And not only that, with their superstition, they believed that the spiritual forces that were at play, which were outside of their sight, they needed to be appeased. And so they had to be very careful to not disrupt the evil spirits so that they would be uh, subject to their uh, effects, whatever those might be. But Paul writes to him, he says, but hold on, your Lord, Jesus Christ, is above He's been exalted above all those powers, whether earthly powers or spiritual powers, all those things. Your your Savior, your King is above them. And so He is watching out for you. He is caring for you in the midst of all that. And I wonder if we have really reflected on the fact that Jesus Christ is exalted and supreme even now. Um, this is something that we don't, we don't see that exaltation. We don't see that, uh, that glory of Christ. We just see our own experience. And yet Jesus Christ really is high and exalted. And so for there, there's not a single power or authority, no, no president, no uh, Supreme Court justice, no uh, dictator nothing in this world that is higher than Jesus and so it would be wise for those earthly leaders to understand their rightful place Uh, even as we read in Psalm 2 uh, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain the Lord laughs at them because he has set his king above all those kiss the son lest he become angry it would be wise for those earthly leaders to recognize their place, but also I think it would be wise for us to recognize that when there seems to be a disparity between God's commands and the commands of the earthly leaders or our fears, we would be right to submit to the Lord's commands above all because he is the highest authority, the Lord above all. So Jesus has been exalted to this highest place, but there's also this aspect of authority. Um, He says in verse 22, And God put all things under his feet. 
So this might seem like it's about the same thing as what he just said, but it's a little bit different because in the earlier passage, he has put Jesus on this highest honor, but now he's saying he has taken all authority and put them under Jesus's feet. So it's a exaltation, but also a submission where he is taking all things and submitting them to Christ. So the Apostle Paul is actually quoting from two very famous psalms. One of them is Psalm 110, which is one of the most quoted psalms in all of the New Testament. And the other is Psalm 8. And Psalm 110, we'll be singing this later this morning. But the psalm says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Till I make your enemies a footstool. And Psalm 8 says, Lord, what is, what is man that you are mindful him of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and you crowned him with glory and honor. You gave him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. And so there's this picture that he's exalted Christ and yet put all authority under the feet of Christ. Now, the writer of Hebrews makes a wise point for us. And he says, now in putting everything in subjection to him, he has left nothing outside of his control. So God has put everything under the control of this exalted Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, the writer of Hebrews goes on to say, at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. So what it's important for us to understand is that God has placed all authority under the Lord Jesus Christ, and yet we do not see it. So think of it. Every authority that is in your life, every bit and piece is under the submission of Christ. Your boss is under the submission of Christ. The school authorities, uh, the the, the local uh, administration Uh, all Republicans and Democrats and the Russian government and the Chinese government and the U.S. government, uh, your neighbors, your spouse, your children, every aspect of everything, all viruses and contagions and natural disasters are under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, even now. And yet we do not see it, he says. But that doesn't mean that it's not real. It is very real, and yet it is hidden from our eyes. But then notice what Paul says next. He says, he put all things under his feet and gave him his head. He gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So he says he gave him to the church. Just as the church has been given to the Lord Jesus Christ, our text says that God has given Christ to the church, but in a unique way. It says, he gave him as head over all things to the church. Now, when we talk about a head, we talk about authority, which certainly follows from what he has said already in this passage. If he's put Christ as an exalted place, the head is exalted. If he's put all things under his feet, the head is uh, directing, ruling, governing. He's the authority of, of the church. And so it would follow that if all things are under his feet, then the church would also be under his feet. And so that aspect is there. And yet this is slightly different, isn't it? Because 
it's not just a head, as though an authoritative head, though it is that, but he says, he gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body. And he says something to the effect of, which really is his body. Like, it's beyond metaphorical. Like, the church really is his body. And so he's saying, he's given Christ as the head, and the church really is his body. There is a unity and a connectedness and a joining of Christ and the church in this relationship, which is different. It is distinct from the authority that he has placed over the rest of the world. He has united the church to himself, and he is the head over that entity. And then it says, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And commentators say that this is perhaps one of the most confusing of Paul's statements anywhere in Scripture. But I think we can say that what, basically what he's saying is that, that the church is, Christ himself is filling the church with himself. And so the church becomes his fullness as Christ fills it, even as Colossians chapter 1 says that in Christ the fullness of the Godhead dwells in him. So Christ himself is filled with the Godhead, and Christ himself fills the church so that he fills all in all in the midst of the church. And Paul will say this later, that um, part of our job is to grow up into every way into Christ, that there is a filling of Christ in the church, and we grow in Christ by the grace of the Holy Spirit so that Christ fills it by his Spirit even as we grow in it. And so there is a unity, not just that Christ is the head and we are the body, but he is in all, he is filling all, he is over all, through all. He is working through his church in a profoundly, intensely intimate way. He is the head directing and controlling all things, but he is also working in each member to build itself up in love. And all that's great, but remember the context of what this passage is. It's talking about the power that God has worked in Christ. And I think the point that we are, we are supposed to see is that this, that all those ways that we see God's power at display in Christ, are those, those same ways are being worked out in the church. So remember what those ways were. The first was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, 1 Corinthians 15, and Romans chapter 6 all talk about this reality that when Christ died, we died with him. But when, we, when Christ was raised, we were raised with him. It is because we are, he is given to the church as the head, and we are his body, that with Christ, that power was made magnified in the church, that resurrection of Jesus Christ. So that's the first way. But the second, and this is where it starts to get surprising for us, the second is in the exaltation or uh, the glory given to Christ himself. Remember the second way that Paul says that this power was made magnified is that he raised Christ and seated him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, above every ruler and power and authority and every name that is named. But if Christ is the head and we are the body, 
and he is working through us, then that also happened to the church. And that's exactly what Paul will say in Ephesians chapter 2. He says that you were dead, but now you've been raised, and God seated us with him in the heavenly realms above all rule and authority and power and dominion. So the church itself has been exalted with Christ into this position of honor and glory. And now the third way is God has put all things under his feet. And so if, again, the church is Christ's body and he is the head, then that means that all these authorities have been placed under the authority of the church. That now the church, as Christ's body, exerts, er, enjoys a position of authority in the midst of all creation that it never had before. And this is a remarkable statement for the church to hear because we tend to feel like we are at the bottom. But he has exalted the church and put all things under them even as we participate in Christ. All right, so that's what the text says. Now just a few uh, points, aspects to think about as we reflect on the passage. So the first is, and this should be obvious, is that as Christ's body, the church is glorious as God works the same power in her that he worked in the Lord Jesus Christ. We have adopted a mindset in this culture that the church is a byword or held in derision. It is a, uh, an also-ran. And yet, if the church is this body of Christ, united to Christ who has been exalted above every name and given the highest honor, then shouldn't we allow that to transform the way that we view the church so that we see the church with the same level of honor and glory that, the, that God has given to her? Um, so the church is glorious, and the second is, by extension, is that as a member of the body of Christ, each one of us, you and I, share in that glory and that exaltation, but not a glory that surpasses the church and a glory that only exists insofar as we are active participants in that body. So church, the, the scripture makes clear that each of us are members of the body of Christ. We're, we're body parts, essentially. And that, that body is united to Christ and really is his body. And so if the body is glorious, if the body is exalted, if the body has authority, then by participation in that body, by members of that body, you and I share in that glory, share in that exaltation. There's, there's intrinsic uh, value to you and I that it goes beyond just merely being created in God's image. We now reflect the glory of Christ himself. But no one of us outshines the other. We are, we are merely participating in that glorious value that God has given to the church. And that it, it's not independent from 
the church. It is as part of participating in that glory. So that's, that's the third thing that we need to think about is that the church is glorious with the working of God's power, but we need to remember that the church only has that because of Christ himself. And this is really important for us to understand. It's easy for us to become very individualistic about our relationship with Christ, but it's also easy for us to give the church perhaps maybe more weight than it should, where the church somehow outshines the Lord Jesus Christ, but we cannot do that. Let's think about the three different ways that Paul talks about this power. The first is salvation. Um, Salvation is something that God has purchased for his body. um, Scripture makes clear that our salvation is based upon the fact that Christ himself lived died and was raised to new life. And yet he did he did this one time. He did this one time for all. He did not do this multiple times for each one of us. So salvation happens because of our union with Christ, but our union with Christ, being united to Christ in these things is because of our participation in his body. So he died once for his body. So Christ came in a physical body and died in his physical body so that his body, the church, could die with him. And he was raised in the body because he was being raised on behalf of his body, the church. And so our glory that we have with Christ, our salvation that we have is because of our participation in Christ, but because Christ, because we are members of his body. And so what that means is that you and I died together in Christ Jesus. We were raised together in Christ Jesus, and we will live forever in Christ Jesus with one another. We will suffer together. We will be able to reign with him forever and ever. It is a unity that is with one another, even as is a unity with Christ himself. So our salvation is, we have to see that it's us in the church and the church in Christ. But the second is uh, the preeminence of Jesus Christ or his exalted nature. Jesus, we, we share in a glory that he has given to us by uniting us to Christ, but the glory that we have can never and does not outshine the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to use our glory, our exalted position as the church to glorify and enjoy the Lord Jesus Christ, to, as we read in Sunday school, to proclaim his excellencies in the midst of this dark world, to exalt the head in everything that we did. But realize that the glory that we have, um, the church is not glorious in an, as an abstract entity. The church is people. It's you and me. And so the, the glory in the church is a glory of its members. And so there's an aspect that for you to, if, if Christ fills all in all, he fills his church, 
and he fills it with his glory. Even as the glory of the Lord filled the temple, he fills the temple of the Holy Spirit. Understand that if you would know the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, you would learn it from one another. That there's a uniqueness. Even as as Christ himself works in each of us individually, he is glorifying and making glorious his church. There's There ought to be a uniqueness of the relationships that we have in the church, a uniqueness of affection, but also a way of understanding Christ better, even as people understand Christ better through each of us. So um, there's a glory that is exalting Christ, even as we have that exaltation in each one of us. But finally, this aspect of authority. Um, this is this is one that can really trip us up. But if Christ has, has been placed, if all authority has been placed under Christ, and we are united to Christ, and so all things are under us, that ought to give us some degree of boldness, don't you think? Um, it ought to give us a degree of confidence that things might happen to us in the midst of this age, and yet the ultimate authority is the Lord Jesus Christ to whom we are united. But we have to be very careful that as Christ is our head, we must only exercise our authority as the head himself would direct. We, as members of, as his body, we don't get to decide how we exert that authority. We must follow what he would have us do, which is, it's easy for us to forget because we might say, well, praise God, all things have been placed under the church's feet. Let's get to work because there's a lot of things we need to fix in the midst of this world. Let's get, let's get, get it taken care of. And yet nowhere in scripture do we have this picture that God would have us fix this age as uh, the end-all, be-all existence that we would have. Instead, what does he say? He says, all authority has, under heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples. Proclaim my excellencies. Exalt my name. Worship me and me only. He uses his authority and he it calls us to, that to exert that authority as far as extending his kingdom and making his name glorious in the midst of this world. Not trying to fix politics or the economy or anything like that, but to make his name glorious. There will come a day when he will right every wrong, he will, his glorious justice will be meted out and everything will be fixed, but it will be fixed according to his timing and his way. And in that time, we, our calling is to exert that authority of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the power of God unto salvation. And so the church exercises that authority and we as individuals participate in that authority only as long as we are exercising the mission that Christ himself has given to his church. So I hope what you see is that the church is anything but powerless. He is, God has given intrinsic power to the church, even as he works through her. The immeasurable greatness of God's power has been worked in the church, even as it was worked in Christ. Um, because God has united the church to Christ forever. And united to Christ forever, we share in his glory and his beauty and his power, not only in this age, but also in the age to come 
and forever and ever. So let's pray. Father, what a glorious promise and proclamation that you have given to us, that you are at work with your, the immeasurable greatness of your power. We pray that you would help us, as Paul prayed, to have eyes to see this power at work in the church. Help us to love the church, even as you love the church. Help us to be bold in the, the mission that you have given to us, that we might be faithful to you that your kingdom might be advanced and that you might be glorified forever and ever. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.